Amen. Well, today, as we should know by now, that we are in the midst of the days of awe, considered to be the most holy time of the year for the Jewish community. It is an appointed time to afflict ourselves and to observe Teshuvah, to return. It's during this time we reflect on our actions and attitudes from the previous year, and we pray to our Father and to our King. We pray for guidance and that having a desire to be transformed into His likeness, ridding ourselves of that selfish and self-centered ways and attitudes with a desire in our hearts to be more like Him to be transformed in the image of Adonai, the image that he desires us to be, and to get rid of anything that's not, that's just not pleasing to him. And it's during this season in particular, there's one word that always seems to flow to the surface. We hear it constantly. We hear it all the time. This particular word, it invokes fear. It invokes trembling. It has images of majesty and holiness, and yet there's hope. What would you figure that word to be? What word do we use more so this time of year than any other? It would be the word, ah. The word, ah. I began to study about a month ago because I've never really considered the word ah. You know, we think a lot of times we know meanings of words. We take them for granted. We just use them gradually. That is until you look at the meaning of the word. And then you go, ah. <laughs> so today we will look at the word ah. And to my amazement, as I was studying, I found that there were three usage for the word, three Hebrew words for the word ah. Now, my Hebrew is not, so bear with me. The first is rageth, rageth. And its meaning means to, be, to have fear, to be afraid, to stand in awe, to quake 
and to tremble. This word for awe is the least in intensity. It is the least. It's more like an acknowledgement of God. I acknowledge God and I am awed. The second word is Yahweh. This word, believe it or not, has all the same words the first one had with a little bit more. It still means fear, still means trembling, still means frightening. But the, there's an added word, which is reverence. Reverence. With this word holds the vast definition of the word ah. The other holds a small space. This one encompasses a whole array of the meaning and the usage of awe. And then there's one more. And that word is pakad, pakad. And this word is a terrible word. It is the most frightening word for awe. It means dread. Great dread. So I've broken down my uh, sermon notes to you today in three different areas. And I've defined them in three ways. First, standing in awe. Second, to be in reverence. And third, the dreadful awe. So, the first one, standing in awe, is this standing in awe is a, it's like a personal acknowledgement that there is a God. It's meaning is in our spirit, if you will, is just below the surface. It's just below the surface. Like, pick number one. See, there you go. I knew you would do that. <laughs> Everybody sees the baby picture, everybody goes, ah. I mean, who hasn't done this, right? We, anybody that goes in the room where, where there's a baby, we, we all say that, right? We all say, we all go, say, yeah, ah. And then we say, how sweet, you know, this baby is. And then we always say the other two must take its looks after its mother. Right? Right. Yes, yes. Somebody heard me out there. Yeah. Takes its look after the mother. But the baby itself, like I said, when we look at it, we do say that. We do say, ah, of course, it's the A-A-A-H-H-H word, ah. But later on, and especially if you're the parent of that baby, Later on, sometime, maybe in the quiet of a night, you're walking down the hall, 
you open up that bedroom door where the baby is sleeping and you observe the innocence of that baby sleeping. You have a sense of emotion that wells up from within you and you fight back tears because you're looking at that baby and you're saying how beautiful and how wonderfully knit together this creation of God is. And in that moment, we are in awe of God and his creative powers. We are in awe. There's another case that we want to share. Pick number five, please, and show these verses here. This is God speaking to Abraham, and he says, I will surely bless, and bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the, sh on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemy. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine Abraham standing beside God one night in a field and God says, you see this? Let's pull up uh, pick number four. He says, you see this? That's how numerous your generations are going to be. And yet Abraham had not seen any fruit of this. He just had the word of God by which he knew God would accomplish all things. And I cannot help but think that when Abraham looked up in that sky and he heard God say, your descendants will be as numerous as all these stars in the sky. I can hear Abraham go, ah, in total awe of God. Now it's true here that we do awe at God's creation. And pick number three. Whether we're looking over landscapes, whether we are observing the starry sky, there, there comes that moment when we're standing someplace, whether it's standing at the lip of the Grand Canyon or whatever, there's a time in our life that we all experience where God basically stops us and he says, look. And you go, ah, God is so awesome. Look at what he has done. I am in awe of God. So when we do take those moments, and if you notice that I said 
it's those moments when we pause and really look is when we see. It's when we pause and truly look is when we see the awesomeness of God. Now this brings me to my second point. Awe is reverence. And as I explained in the beginning, the section of reverence is huge. Because this awe can be a standing awe. It could be a kneeling awe. It could be a on-your-face awe. This reverence covers a vast area. So I thought it best to use a story in scriptures that we should all be fairly familiar with. And this is about King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And I want to use him as the example. And I did not give these scriptures to them because we would be covering three chapters and they couldn't move that fast. But in first, uh, excuse me, in Second Chronicles 19, Verses 1 through 3, we read the following. When King Jehoshaphat of Judah returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, or the prophet, the son of Hanai, I guess that's correct, went out to meet him and say to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this... The wrath of God is on you. However, there is some good in you. For you have rid the land of Azeroth poles, and you have set your heart on seeking God. And see, now right away, just reading that, that tells me two things that has already happened to Jehoshaphat in the past. One, he's already reverenced God because he has tore down the Asheroth poles. He is acknowledging through this act that he is in awe of God, a godly reverence for God to tear these poles down. And the prophet acknowledged that you are seeking God. There is some good in you. But why is God mad at Jehoshaphat? Well, for this we have to turn back to the previous chapter. Now, in the previous chapter, we're told, first of all, and this is in chapter 18, that Jehoshaphat, one, he had great wealth. Two, he had great honor. But three, he aligned himself with the evil king of Israel, Ahab, and he aligned himself through marriage. Now, we must realize that at this time in history, 
Israel is a divided kingdom, the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And Ahab was indeed an evil king. But Jehoshaphat went north to King Ahab and apparently made an alliance with him through marriage. And so when he arrives there in verse 3 of chapter 18, King Ahab of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are. My people are your people. We will join together in war. And then it appears like almost in an afterthought, Jehoshaphat says, but first let's seek the Lord. He already agreed to go, and then he says, well, wait a minute, let's seek the Lord. And we recall what happens next. King Ahab calls up his 400 prophets, and they're all sitting there telling King Ahab everything he wants to hear. But King Jehoshaphat, in his wisdom, in his reverence for God, knows that these aren't God's prophets. These are your prophets, King Ahab. But is there a prophet in the land that speaks of the Lord, that speaks from the Lord? And, of course, we know that story. So, once King Ahab was questioned about a true prophet in Israel, he says, yeah, that's a prophet. I don't like calling on him, though, because every time I call on him, he always speaks ill of me, and I do not like that. So I don't want to do it, but if you say this is the way we got to go, you know, I'm warning you, though, when he comes, he's going to say something bad. I know he is. That's just the way he is. But I'll call on him anyway. So he sends people out to go find this prophet. And in verse 16 of chapter 18, Micaiah the prophet came and said, I saw, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people will have no master. Let everyone go home in peace. Now to me, that sounds pretty clear. Jehoshaphat sort of got up and says, well, <laughs> see you later. I'm on my horse. I'm going home. But strangely enough, he didn't listen. But did you hear what I said before? Jehoshaphat says, but is there a prophet in the land that speaks for the Lord? And Ahab said, yes, there is. This is the guy. He's speaking for the Lord. Jehoshaphat is hearing the prophet, yet he ignores him. I don't get it. But the prophet prophesies, and everything that he prophesies comes true. 
King Ahab is killed in battle, just like the prophet prophesied. The people were without a king. His army is scattered. Jehoshaphat returns home. Now let me read to you what the second prophet said. This is the second prophet that we read at the beginning of the story. And it says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God is against you. There is, however, some good in you. For you have rid the land of Azarus poles and have set your heart on seeking God. It must have been at this very moment that Jehoshaphat's spirit was shaken. I believe he trembled when he heard these words. I think he came to his senses and realized, hey, I disobeyed a prophet of the Lord. I really goofed up. I have seriously sinned. What does he do next? His next steps show the reverence, the fear that he has for the Lord. What does he do? He gets on his horse and he goes throughout all Judah. He goes to every town and he sets up righteous judges. And he gives them this instruction from Second Chronicles 19, 6 and 7. He tells them, consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord, who is, who is with you everywhere you give a verdict. Now, he says, now let the fear of the Lord, let the awe of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, there is no impartiality, or partiality, excuse me, or bribery. But then he goes a step further. He goes to Jerusalem, and there he sets up the priestly order. He sets up the teachers of the Torah. And he sets up righteousness in Jerusalem. We read from chapter 19, Second Chronicles 19, verses 8 and 9. In Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, the priests, and heads of the Israelite families to administer the law of God, the law of the Lord, and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. And he gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in awe of the Lord. Jehoshaphat 
was doing all he could do to turn the entire land, to turn their faces toward God. He set up righteous uh, judges. He set up righteous religious leaders. He set a teaching. Everything that he could do, he set up in his country because he reverenced the Lord. However, just when you think you have it all together, when everything's in place, here comes a report. Uh, King, uh, I hate to tell you this, but there are three huge, did I say huge armies on the borders of our country? And I'm, did I say huge? And there is no way we can defeat them. There is, did, did I say huge? <laughs> you will not defeat this army. They are huge. But by this time, Jehoshaphat had learned a lesson. In chapter 20, verse 3 of 2 Chronicles, the word starts off, alarmed. Alarmed. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and to proclaim a fast for all of Judah. This is something Jehoshaphat forgot to do the first time. Before he left this country, he forgot to seek the Lord on what he should do. He learned his lesson. There's trouble before him. He immediately calls out to all of Judah, there is a fast. We are in trouble. We must seek the Lord's guidance. This is out of my hands. Only at the direction of the Lord will I act. Whatever he says, we will do. I reverence God. So as he's, the people are together in Jerusalem, the people there, all in reverence of God, they're on their faces. Jehoshaphat stands up before them, gives the kingly prayer for his country for his people. And then there rose up a third prophet. And the prophet says, this battle is not yours. This battle belongs to the Lord. You will not have to raise a sword nor shield just do as I tell you to do and behold the awesomeness, the fearfulness of the Lord. And so they went to the place where the Lord told them to go. The worship team went out first and then others. 
praising the Lord all the way, on a hill looking down at this tremendous army. And behold, they all turned on themselves and destroyed themselves. And you cannot tell me that there wasn't one praise and worship member or one member of the army that stood on that hill and looked down and saw these, saw the hand of God at work, that they were not in awe of God. This brings me to my third point. And that is dreadful awe. This word is so different than all the other words. And I think when we use the word dreadful awe, I think we all know what we mean. This will be the day that when each and every one of us will stand before an awesome God and the books will be open and we will all make account for all we said and for all that we've done. I cannot think of a more dreadful time to see the Lord high and lifted up full of all the glory and majesty there ever was. And then here you, standing before him. I would be dreadfully afraid. Song of Revelation 20, 12 and verse 15. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was open which is the book of life the dead were, were judged according to what, was, what they had done as recorded in the books and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There will, be, there will be a day when God separates the sheep from the goats. One side to salvation and eternal life, the other to eternal damnation. We are in the time of awe. Today is the day that if you have not received Yeshua as Messiah of your life, today is the day. Because judgment is coming and we don't know the day that it will come. We don't know. 
So I plead with anyone who's here who has not received Yeshua in their heart and in their lives. I pray today you will make that decision. Let us pray.